1: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Will we soon see a floating barge housing migrants in Dublin and in Cork? They are part of plans being considered by the government.
2: There is no uh, single answer, there's no silver bullet. Uh, We are looking at all accommodation options that are there uh, across the country.
1: We hear from a Galway woman who says a kidney transplant has given her life. And Ron DeSantis has thrown his hat into the ring for the American presidency but does he have it enough to beat Donald Trump? You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag VMTV. begin tonight with some sad breaking news rock and roll legend tina turner has died
3: she
1: was 83 her representative says she died after a long illness Turner, often called the queen of rock and roll, was one of the biggest recording artists of all time. Tonight, everyone from US President Joe Biden to Mick Jagger have paid tribute. And just before coming on air, I spoke to broadcaster Dave Fanning about Tina Turner's life and I asked him about her legacy.
2: I think the biggest impact that she had was that she was a survivor. and She was a survivor of some of the worst things possibly ever visited on a human being. It went right down in the 1970s. Somebody said she was a cleaner by the, like by 1975, even though she was still bringing out albums. And uh, she then went to Vegas and people like Elvis before he died went to see her. David Bowie, you know, Elton John, they all wanted to see Tina Turner. But they were looking at somebody that was gone, that was past, that had her time in the early 60s and the late 50s as well, and was electric, was Unbelievable, charismatic, great vocalist, magnetic, but she was gone. And then the 1980s, I mean, what a bizarre story. Like, if you take Taylor Swift, if, like, you know, at the age of 33 now, she was a superstar, whatever, five or six years ago. Even Beyonce, 20 years ago, the same thing. And She's, uh, that was at the age of 21. Like, Tina Turner came back at 45. And if you say queen of whatever it was, like, Michael Jackson was the king of pop. She was the queen of pop in the 1980s. It's bizarre.
1: Yeah, it was incredible, really. And it was her live performances, really, that made uh, Tina Turner stand out, not just to her audiences, like on a global scale.
2: Yeah but at the live performances now to be honest like in fact on, on Virgin last weekend like there's a repeat of Fanning of Wheeling's and we bring a guest in to talk about their favourite music and last week it was Louis Walsh first thing he picked was uh, Ike and Tina Turner to me that's the real Tina Turner just the electricity the sexiness the whole thing of it I mean Ike realised from the word go this 16 year old that came in I'm going to Patent this and he actually did. He he, he trademarked the name. Now, when, when she left him, finally, which she should have done many years before that, but we all know those kind of stories. When she left him, um, he, she got two cars and was, a, was able to keep the name. And of course, her name isn't Turner, but I mean, she was able to keep that name and keep it going right through to the 80s as well. But she was astonishing. I mean, she was an astonishing performer. I got to see her once only, about 2008, 2009. She played what is now the Three Arena. It was the 02. She played a bunch of nights there and she was great. There's no doubt about it. But if you want to. See the real Tina Turner. Take a look at her as the you know the I cats and all that kind of thing with Ike and Tina in the early sixties. Incredible stuff. Like Mick Jagger was so taken by all of this. Even tonight he's tweeted and he talks about the fact that she was inspiring and warm and you know really funny and very genuine and really nice and all the rest. And as he said, she helped me so much. There's no doubt about it. Mick Jagger has been channeling Tina Turner for fifty years.
1: And um, Dave, you talked about it there, but it really it was her resilience and her ability to overcome so much as some who is a survivor of domestic abuse to make such a massive comeback as you say in their 40s and that made her so inspiring
2: yeah i mean one of the things is i remember seeing a 60 minutes program from american television and your man says uh, look you're really doing well now you're married to this guy she was hanging around with this guy for about 27 years and finally married him about 10 years ago and uh very happy and he gave her i think the, he donated I don't know, she was, she was sick. She had dialysis machine quite a lot over the last 10 years. But the thing is that uh, your man says to me, you "Know, you, you, so you feel like you deserve all of this? And she said, I deserve more. She knew damn well how bad her life had been. It had been a really, really difficult, terrible life. And the one thing she said was, I just kept going. I had to keep going. And then bingo, it really happened in the age of MTV.
1: And uh, Dave, finally, for you, uh, the the standout songs, the standout hits that uh, you'll remember her for and her audience worldwide will remember her by.
2: Well, look, I mean, the standout hits for everybody is what's love got to do with it and simply the best and all the rest of it from The Private Dancer, her fourth solo album from the uh, mid-80s, but not for me. Before that, it was definitely River Deep, Mountain High, one of the greatest songs ever written. And one other one too, I noticed even on the TV in the last hour or so, I've been watching some stuff and the one song they play the most, bizarrely, is one I saw performed last night at Three Arena by the guy who wrote it, and that's uh, John Fogerty. He played a gig last night. In other words, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I kept going, rolling, rolling on the river, and all the rest of it, and that. And like, it's more famous by Tina than it ever was by Creedence, even though it was big by them. So yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it'd be probably, and it's called Proud Mary, Proud Mary, or particularly River Deep Mountain High. They're the ones for me.
1: Brilliant. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dave Fanning. Thank you for joining us Thanks, tonight uh, to talk to us and reflect on the life of Tina Turner. Thanks, Claire. Now to the rest of today's news and to what Taoiseach Leo Varadkar is calling a major crisis, migrant accommodation. In a few months' time, it's possible we will see a barge with floating accommodation sitting on the Liffey. Well, it's known as a flotel. With reports today, the government is planning to launch a formal tentering process around it. The plan is similar to what's about to be used in the UK. This ship will house... As some 500 migrants endorse it on the south coast of England. Well, let's discuss more with my panel now. I'm joined by Senator Barry Ward of Fine Labour Senator Annie Hoey, and Tom Phillips, Adjunct Associate Professor of Architecture and Planning at UCD. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, we saw pictures there of what uh, is... is coming down the line, which will be docked uh, shortly off the coast of Dorset in the UK. And we'll get that perspective from over there shortly. But to come to you first, Barry, on all of this, uh, where did the Department of Integration get the idea for floating accommodation? And is now the first time this has been considered?
3: No, I mean, this is not a new idea. I remember when I was on Donnery at Down County Council there was a proposal to have an actual tourist flotel in Donnery Harbour. It didn't come to fruition, but, and it doesn't have to look like the one that you showed there, but they're quite common on the Rhine, for example, and in Germany. Um, my understanding is that a number of offers have come to the department in light of the crisis. We know there are 199 people tonight who, don't, who are seeking international protection and don't have accommodation. This is an offer that's come, and I welcome it, because if it's a solution, however short-term it might be, or temporary, it is still a solution and we don't want any of those people to have to sleep in the streets. And if we can avoid that, then I, I would welcome any solution to so that. So
1: Barry, uh, just to clarify, look, where, where does Finnegale stand on it? Because we heard from the Finance Minister, Michael McGrath, saying today on the issue of floating accommodation that Roderick O'Gorman ha- has come to Cabinet with, with a view and a proposal that hasn't happened yet. And in his view, the preference is housing refugees in vacant buildings. Mm. Do you think floating accommodation is a good idea?
3: Well, it's a good idea if it helps to solve the problem, yes. But there are lots of different ways in which the problem can be solved. And obviously, huge strides have been made. If you look at the last year and a bit and the massive influx of people coming to this country seeking protection, it's astonishing that we have achieved accommodating so many of them but we know now that the system is is very much stretched. We also know that there are vacant buildings. And in my own area, for example, in Dun there is a propo- proposal to refurbish the old Dun Senior College in Ablana Avenue and to house 166 people there. And I'm delighted that Dun can play its part in solving the problem and also using those public buildings that are otherwise empty and potentially derelict.
1: But, of course, all of this takes time. Um, you know, docking a, a, a cargo, a boat that looks a little bit like a, a cargo, a barge with prefabs on it, um, there's a lot faster turnaround. Danny? I mean, in your view, or what's Labour's thoughts on it? Do they think it's a good
4: idea? I mean, it's better than people sleeping in tents, but I'm not entirely convinced of the, either from an optics perspective of putting people on boats. Um, you know, people who are seeking refuge here. I know this was something that was floated by the PD Fianna Fáil government about 20 years ago, and they. Didn't go ahead with it because of the experience that Denmark had, and they discontinued the practice. Actually, so other countries that have done this not so long in our recent past have discontinued it because of a variety of reasons. I'm, I'm, you know, even in Dublin city centre, we've got the Jury's Hotel, we've got Bagot Street. There are, there are buildings, there are literal buildings that are built for human uh, inhabitation that are sitting vacant. And I think people listening to this, and I I did almost like a straw poll coming in here this evening, and people like. Why are we, what? Like, we've so many vacant houses. We've got so much vacant properties. and um, It's not like we've run out of land in the country or anything like that. And I'm just, I'm just I'm not entirely sure if this is some sort of like, are we trying to discourage people from coming here because we want to put them on a floatel? A mm-hmm. um, to be honest with you, I think the only people that should be put in floatels is, you know, it's, it's a, a tourist attraction. And my real fear not around these things... Notwithstanding the number of people that we've seen in tents because there simply isn't
1: accommodation being got for them.
4: But we should have accommodation. I, well, you know, I've, I've literally listed two vacant hotels. There's a vacant hotel across the road from Leinster House that we have to walk past every single day, and then we walk past people in tents. That's madness. And my real concern around this is when we always do things on a temporary basis, we need only look at our direct provision centres. I've known people who've been languishing at direct provision centres for 11 years or more because they haven't had anywhere to go. And, like, these were in chalets that were, you know, are, are falling down. They're not suitable. We... You know, we have to be real careful that we, not, we don't set up this flotel and then people are just literally left floating there yeah. for an, an, an unknown amount of time. Uh, Barry, on this, is
1: this not really last resort stuff, that there is vacant property and there, there, that, that simply hasn't been used? I think Annie mentioned a couple of examples there that could be turned around and could mm-hmm. be used um, to house people In buildings, on land.
3: Yeah, and that's part of the plan as well. As I say, the flotels are just one strand of of the solutions that are being brought to bear. But, I mean, I agree with Annie. I don't want this to be a long-term solution. I don't think anybody's proposing that it should be. But if it's part of the solution that gets people under a roof, into a secure accommodation.
1: So would you imagine there'd be a timeline on, on, on these flotels? You'd probably require I, I, more than more than one.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I know there's a proposal for Dublin City Centre and there's one for Cork, but I mean, I don't know where the boats are at this moment. I don't know how long it'll take to put them in place. But I, I, I support a solution, even on a short-term basis, if it's going to give people safe a safe place to st- spend tonight.
1: OK, and Tom, as an expert in the area of planning and in housing, is putting people on barges... Uh, an emergency housing solution that is fit for a purpose, do you think?
5: I, I think it is, and I think it's, un- it's very unfortunate. I mean, if you go down Mount Street today in Dublin, you can see rows of tents outside government buildings because people are, are, have arrived. And if you look at the number, there's 60,000 Ukrainians and 20,000 others have come to war in the last year. That's 80,000 people. Average household size is 2.7. That's 30,000 housing equivalent. And we're supposed to build 33,000 houses before they all arrived. So that means there are only 3,000 houses left for everybody else. So we have a major housing crisis and we've had a government uh, situation where uh, co-living has been abandoned, it's not allowed anymore, and there's, there's other forms of housing. Built rent is being constrained. So we need housing, we need to look after people and give them proper accommodation. These flotels are designed normally for oil rig people, for people on oil rigs, and they've got hospitals on, on them and gymnasiums, but the people in them have a purpose every day. They're going to work every day, they're, they're working on an oil rig. Yeah, it's Even, very different these, if you, are if single you're stuck people. there and you can't it go is. anywhere. It is, yeah, that is very difficult. But we have a huge crisis, and you've seen it, where we're trying to put people well the government's trying to put people into housing and local people are upset about it so they have to people have to go somewhere and they have to have somewhere humane that they can live and be looked after
1: all right okay let's um, bring in the uk perspective on this um, as we mentioned before these hotels are about to be used um, in britain let's bring in journalist uh, vincent MacAvini. and vincent um we are considering it here. In the UK, it's actually happening Um, in Dorset. And we saw pictures of the the boat in question, a three-storey barge being used to house hundreds of people seeking asylum. Why have the government there chosen to do this?
6: That's right. This pilot programme will launch in the summer with the barge you're seeing on screen now. It will hold around 500 men. It will only be men in 222 bedrooms and there is going to be a canteen for them and a gym. Now, the reason the UK government has decided to do this Uh, is because they have been desperately trying to drive down the number of migrants from the hundreds of thousands to the tens of thousands. That was a promise they made over a decade ago now. And one of the things they've done is to try and squeeze the asylum system, particularly, of course, post-Brexit. But what we have seen in the last eight years is that it's gone from a few hundred people crossing the channel every year to almost 50,000 last year. Now, there is uh, expectations that it's going to be even higher this year uh, here in the UK already, they're trying to process the asylum claims as quick as they can, but there's a backlog of around fifty to 60,000. So they are currently spending £6 million a day in the UK housing these people in hotels, in b bs in other kinds of properties up and down the country. Uh, and so they think that this is a potential solution. It will cost less. It will cost about £20,000 uh, a day to run. But I think there is also that deterrence factor. They're going to publicise the fact Look, if you come to the UK, we're not going to put you in a hotel anymore. You're not going to be able to enjoy life in the UK. You're going to be parked in a barge. Of the south coast of
1: England. Yeah, interesting. So, maybe quite a pointed decision as well, and sending out a message there to people who may be trying to come into the country. Uh, what has been the reaction? Um, it, it, from what it appears, it seems that those uh, opposed to it range from sort of NIMBYs, you know, Conservative MPs who say it's bad for port business and, you know, an eyesore on the water, and then people who would support refugees who say it's simply not an adequate uh, solution and not the right shelter for people who are seeking international. Protection?
6: Yeah, it's one of these issues that really does affect uh, MPs across party political lines because asylum seekers are being housed uh, in hotels and guest houses right across the country. Uh, And what you're seeing in the local communities now that we're out of the pandemic times and people are traveling, those towns are then being hit by people not being able to stay in the hotels. And we've also seen a number of times that the far right and people like Nigel Farage have identified these hotels publicly. And then we've had huge protests and violence outside of them. So the situation cannot go on as it is. uh, But many people wanting instead the Home Office to get to grips with the asylum backlog to process these claims. They've already done deals with the likes of Albania, where there's essentially a fast-track system back, anyone from Albania. Is processed and pretty much sent back uh, unless there's some exceptional circumstances. But what MPs want across the board is that these asylum claims are processed much more quickly and people are returned. The government's got the Rwanda scheme uh, where they were trying to offshore these people as well to Rwanda. That, though, has been caught up in legal wrangling. So this solution, I think, that they've come up with of these boats, they're only going to do one. It's going to be for 18 months of a pilot. It's going to be on the south coast of the UK. That's a lot of Conservative MPs. They don't want it parked on the side of their constituency because they worry it will cause problems. Uh, Many people, though, on the human rights side saying that there are real issues about treating people like this. And there's also concerns, of course, of public health, because we saw in the pandemic how quickly viruses and disease can spread around uh, cruise ships. People coming, we're not quite sure what the vaccination status is here. So do they all need to get, you know, double COVID vaccines before they can go on this boat? It could be a pretty you know disastrous case for the government.
1: All right okay Vincent McGavney thank you um for bringing us up to date on what is happening uh, there in the UK. Uh, Barry to come back on this are you concerned at all you know when when you hear about the concerns on the opposition um that that that's being voiced in the UK around all of this that it won't bode well for government here.
3: I actually think we have a totally different attitude to this issue than people in the UK do. But the,
1: it'll be the same-looking boat. I mean, you're going to have well, a similar... Well, it, it won't
3: necessarily. And okay. There are lots of different forms of these, but I think Irish people are fundamentally much more accepting of our international obligations in relation to people who come here looking for assistance, whether it's from war-torn Ukraine or anywhere else.
1: Barry, we, can we... you say that realistically, when we have seen all these protests taking place, opposition, a, to, people, opposition small... to people, opposition to people, and moving into accommodation I think that has been scrambled? by people,
3: government a small portion of the population and in fact this morning on radio I was listening to a group from a community in Tipperary who had welcomed um, a large number of asylum seekers into their community and they are now part of their community they're playing their part they're contributing in terms of sport and being you know part what, of that, that community won't really that's the way we need you're, to see it' if you're in floating accommodation, it, it absolutely it? it absolutely can but as I say this is only one strand of this and I think it's it's very important to look at the stark difference between the approach in Ireland and the approach in the UK we're not trying to put these people into another country we're not trying to say to them you're not welcome here we're saying quite the opposite and ireland has taken more like in terms of the where the fifth largest number of ukrainians have come into here of any country in europe and all the other countries are bordering ukraine so i welcome our attitude to this much rather much more so than what i see in the uk okay
1: a different approach um barry says that it isn't and we don't have the same attitude here um to the migrant issue and to people coming seeking international protection in this country so it would all look very different
4: I don't know if it looks that different. We're still going to put migrants on boat on a boat, like it. it, And I, I just when we're in a budget surplus and we're patting ourselves on the back, being like we've got ten billion, well done us. Like I'm just really struggling to understand how we have a housing crisis when we have seemingly money coming out of our ears, where we have properties that are vacant up and down the country.
3: It's not a money problem, it's a time problem, it's a space problem. There are private property rights in this country, there are lots of other there are materials, there's work. They're so, the housing prices, the crisis is so complex. But even if these boats come in tomorrow, the, number, the proportion of international protection applicants will be housing boats is tiny. The vast majority of them are housed in proper accommodation around the country, and that's the way it should be. Uh,
1: uh, Tom, on all of this, and um, it's really put the focus on how buildings can be repurposed in order to meet the the, the crisis that we are seeing right now. Um, Repurposing office buildings, should, should should that also be looked at if we're talking about flotels, would this be a better kind of use of? Oh, it, it is. Yeah. And I mean, a better way to do things.
5: Absolutely, and the, the, the government have brought in policies to um, exempt from planning permission certain the conversion of certain offices into into um, residential, and also vacant pubs can be turned into up to nine. Residential units, but they must comply with the with the regulations. So we have very strong regulations, and the, they're different matters. though, because these are for emergency emergency situations for people who come in very quickly, as opposed to the conversions of offices. So, can it are happen permanent. quickly
1: in terms of the turnaround? Well,
5: the, the flotilla th- th- or flotel thing could happen quickly, but the, the retrofitting of, of of offices doesn't happen quickly because there's a long lead-in time, and they have to be. There's a lot of standards, there's fire standards, there are various other standards, and also finding the people and equipment and the resources to do it because one of the good things about the migrants is that they might be some of the resources we need in terms of human ability to do these, this work because we can't get people to do work. Are we there's on a on the back of... foot
1: with all of this, in your view? Well, I mean, well, we've, we've, well, we've, look, we had a huge um, number of people coming over here escaping, fleeing from war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and, and then we had a big jump in international protect, protection applicants as well. But are we on the ba- back foot when we're considering, you know, getting that vacant housing, um, you know, ready for people who will need this accommodation now and, and turning around maybe buildings like that that are out of use?
5: Well, we are and, and, the reason, and there's a very good reason and, and that is that if you think that the, the census was done last year in the 3rd of April, And then after that, a lot of Ukrainians arrived and and others, Syrians and others, came into the country. And if you look at it, about 80,000 people, I think it's 60,000 Ukrainians, 20,000 others, that's 80,000 people. That's equivalent to the whole population of Limerick City and and environs moving into another part of the country and needing housing. So we have a huge amount of people. We already have a housing crisis. We're never doing the number of houses we should be building in the country. It should be 60,000 per annum. We're doing around 30 on on a good day. So we have a huge housing crisis for the indigenous population. Then we've got suddenly people in a war-torn Ukraine. Then you've got the international people. And then we're going to have a referendum on the right to housing itself, which could bring more people in from Europe into Ireland. So we have a huge housing crisis. And part of the reason is that it's often a case of the housed stopping the unhoused. So people live in housing, live in apartments, and they don't want others to live there. They forget that is there, places is there, are constantly evolving. Is
1: there a solution here, Tom, um, that doesn't require such what some would see as very drastic measures like introducing floating accommodation on the banks of the Liffey? Not, not in the immediate
5: term, because this is an immediate problem. And the flo- this flotel could do it quickly. We, it, retrofitting takes time. I mean, the LDA, the Land Development Agency, came out recently and said when they get land, they worked out it'll take about six years from the identification of land to having it built. That's six years. We haven't got six years. This Ukrainian issue happened in the last 12 months. So we, time is not on our side. And it's a little bit like the COVID crisis. The government had to act on the hoof. They couldn't, they hadn't time to, to do it as you would in an ideal world. We're not in an ideal world.
1: Um, I just want to move on to uh, another big story today. And that's about the, the meta job losses. Uh, Barry Ward, 500 people, almost 500 being let go by Facebook's parent company. Uh, the tech sector is doing really well for itself, being um you know, based here in Ireland and we are really happy to have big tech companies over here. But when it comes to their workforce, it appears that hundreds of people today are expendable.
3: Well, not expendable and and that may not be the way people who are receiving that news today feel. But I think it's very important to remember that... um, they are highly qualified people, and you would hope that they would be snapped up. It is we currently have full employment in this country. We have never had such low unemployment figures, and so those people can rest assured that there will be work for them. Uh, it's not easy, obviously, and it's it's. I know it's. it's certainly, uh, the government has had to grapple with the fact that not all of those tech companies respects the manner in which those steps should be taken and and the employment laws that exist here and the protections for employees. But um, we do have, at the moment, it is very much an employee's market in Ireland. With full employment, there is definitely a market for those people and their high skills.
1: Uh, we heard Zuckerberg describing 2023 as the year of efficiency. Annie, um, do you believe that there needs to be more supports in place for those workers who've been made um, redundant, a little bit more stability in their jobs? It seems that we, they, they're big employers and take in a lot of people and then, you know, a lot of people can be let go, um, you know, at, at just a quick quick decision by someone like Mark Zuckerberg.
4: Yeah, and I can't imagine. And I have a number of uh, friends who work in there and the strain that they've been under knowing that this is coming for the past couple of months, the second round of it, it's more employees let off than the first The first round and we reacted with, in horror with that. I think it'll be interesting to see now how workers start to organise, I think, in that sector. I think there's a lot of conversation around trade union organising and, and workers fighting for their rights in a sector that traditionally didn't seem to need to organise because of the, the, the conditions were so great and so good. Um, so I think we'll certainly see a change in that happening over the coming time. But it's incredibly difficult. And I think, the government, to be fair, the government has stepped up and said that whatever supports they need. But it does show to us that we can turn around and, and bend over and offer everything to these big international, multinational companies, whatever it is that they need here. But that doesn't mean they're going to have any loyalty to us. Um, and I think those 500 people today have learned that, unfortunately.
1: Okay, my thanks to Annie Hoey and to Tom Phillips. Barry Ward will be staying on with me. We'll be hearing the extraordinary story of one Galway mother and her last-minute kidney transplant. Do stay with us.
5: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
1: extraordinary story of Michelle Verity whose last minute organ transplant means that she is now living a healthy life and Michelle joins me now I'm also joined by Carol Moore who's chief executive of the Irish Kidney Association and Barry is still here with us uh, thank you very much for joining us on the program and Michelle I want to come to you uh, first on all of this uh, how did you end up needing a transplant because it wasn't there wasn't a problem that was identified in your kidneys until you were what, in your 20s? or, or Early 20s. Early, early 20s. Yeah,
0: so I have a genetic condition called polycystic kidney disease, but I'm one of the 10% who just sporadically mutated this condition. It's not actually in my family. So I wasn't aware of it at all until I got a mild kidney infection and got quite sick afterwards. And they did an ultrasound because it started in my kidneys and I was diagnosed. But at the time I had 100% kidney function, so you know, I, it didn't affect me and I, I got over my illness and I got on with my life, but I kind of knew in the future that I would need a transplant at some point.
1: Yeah. And it was uh, at the age of 34 that your, your kidney function started to decline and you had a very busy life. You had an awful lot going on then. So how, how did you manage all of that?
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, it started to decline slowly, but, you know, we were starting a family and, and all of that. And I think once we started a family, I was in end-stage kidney failure. I think that was the toughest part, you know, having a, a small child and being quite unwell. By the time he was two, I was in end-stage kidney failure. And by the time he was three and a half, I was on dialysis. So that was all quite difficult. Now, I have a great support network around me, but obviously it's, it's still quite tough. I can't even begin to imagine, I mean, life with a newborn and a small child is
1: so tough yeah. as it is that you were sort of balancing that yeah. and your very busy life as a young mum, with dialysis, with, you know, medication, with all of this stuff that is so heavy going on your body. Yeah. You know, how, how crippling
0: was it? You know, at the time, it's one of those things you're just you just get on with it. It's like being a new mum. If you never had any illness, you're exhausted and you just power through. You take it one day at a time. I think in some ways you don't even realize how sick you are until you feel better. Um, as I say, I had a great support network. My husband was incredible. My family are incredible, my friends. Um, But I was able to do dialysis at home, which I think made a big difference. I wasn't in and out of the hospital and it was during COVID as well. So that helped. And yeah, it was definitely tough. But, you know, you You, get on. You
1: actually had dialysis on the go, didn't you? Because you converted a camper van uh, as a family thing, something to do during lockdown. A lot of people had
0: projects. You had one um, (laughs) that served a very practical purpose. Well, credit to my husband for pimping it out um, with uh, leisure batteries and an inverter. But we were able to take our dialysis machine on the road, which was amazing because we isolated completely for a year and a half because of COVID, of course. I was high risk being on dialysis. So we were able to just travel around the country, you know, have garden visits with friends once lockdown was over. And it made a big difference, you know. Now, you were on the transplant
1: list and you were, you were thrilled about that. But um, it wasn't so straightforward in terms of finding a donor, was it, Michelle?
0: Yeah, it was kind of hard to match. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. I have, uh, I'm an O type blood and that's a universal donor. So everyone can potentially get the, the organ from an O blood type. So that meant that was in demand. So that made me hard to match. I also have a very uncommon tissue type. Um, and finally, there's a, there's a thing called organ or called uh, tissue antibodies, where your body builds up antibodies against certain tissue types. You know, from different things that might occur in your life. And without going into the science of it, uh, I had ninety nine percent tissue antibodies, which meant I would reject ninety nine percent of the pool of hundred or a thousand Irish donors. So-, so there was no match with family with relatives. No, no. My husband and my sister were approved to donate on the paired Exchange Scheme out of Belfast, the UK paired Exchange Scheme, but every quarter they do a, a run and, yeah, we didn't get any match out of that, unfortunately.
1: You did get a phone call, though, um, last year.
0: <sighs> yeah, last, yeah, late last summer. Um, two minutes to midnight, the phone rang. Uh, it was an 087 number, so I thought it was one of those scam calls that were going around at the time. But as soon as I heard my name in a human voice... I just kind of knew and then it was all frantic. And where's the hospital bag? We packed it two years ago um, you know, luckily I was staying with my mum and dad at the time. So they were able to look after my son who was, uh, he was four at the time. And yeah, we just, it was all the questions. When did you last have COVID? Have you had your vaccines? How, how quick before you can get to Bow Mountain? Yeah, jumped in the car and we were up there at three in the morning. Brilliant, you are the picture of health now. You're oh, doing really well. <laughs> yeah, feeling great feeling great. Still building up my strength and my stamina and things like that, just from being sick for so many years. But my kidney is doing fantastic, thankfully. Yeah, that's great. Carol,
1: uh, to come to you on all of this, because it is Organ Donor Awareness Week. Um, You know, what's the main message that you're hoping to get out on this week? Because it's really vital, isn't it, that people, you know, do have access to donors, that people do offer to
7: donate vital organs that ultimately save lives like Michelle's? Yes. I mean, the the key message we want to get out is don't leave your family in doubt. So whether you choose to donate or not donate, have that conversation with your family, because what all the research shows is that when families are in this very difficult position, their loved one is dying, it's very difficult for them to decide to donate unless they actually know their loved one's wishes. And the research shows that when they know their loved one wants to donate, they're much more likely to actually make the decision to donate. So it's really important to have that conversation.
1: From a legislative point of view, there is this opt out bill. Um, could you tell us about that and where that is at at the moment? Because okay. we did expect that to be coming into law where it would be that you had to say explicitly that you didn't want to donate your organs, otherwise they would be donated for it.
7: Yes, the human tissue bill, it's been talked about for a very long time. It was brought back into the Dáil in January And amendments were proposed, so we understand from the Minister that it will be back before the Health Committee in another number of weeks. But the main message to get across is that the Human Tissue Bill is bringing in what's called an opt-out register. So people who have opted out, their families will not be approached for donation. But if you haven't opted out, your family will still need to give consent. So there will be no organ donation without family consent. So that's why the message is so important. Don't leave your family in doubt. Where the Human Tissue Bill is aiming to make a difference is that it will allow altruistic donation. So currently, people who want to give their kidney to a stranger, they have to go abroad to do that. It's replacing legislation that goes back to the 18th century. So it's well overdue. And the key aim is that it will actually change the culture of organ donation, because currently the question is, would you consider organ donation? Whereas the aim is to change the question to, uh, you know, please donate. So it will change the the type of approach that uh, healthcare professionals will be able to take uh, to families. But obviously it's very important. It's a very difficult time for families. And again, the research shows that when you have highly trained uh, healthcare professionals asking that question and people are on an organ donor registry, you get consent rates of above 90%. Mm -hmm. So that's where we want to get.
1: Yeah, um, you know, this bill is going through. It's not law yet, Barry. Um, What's the hold-up, or how likely are we to see, you know, some developments in this area that will... It help people and, and increase the number of donors available in well, this country? the
3: bill was published in November of last year and came into the into the doll in January. It's a committee stage now, so it is being debated. It is progressing, and we look forward to receiving it from the Janet. Is there
1: uh, opposition um,
3: to it? I'm not aware of any substantial opposition. I know some people have concerns about it, but I think what Carol has said there, and Michelle is the greatest advertisement for this kind of thing, to see what difference uh, organ donation can make. Uh, Carol is making the point that if you don't talk to your family, I think that's where people are afraid because they're not expecting it. And the message has to be to get people to discuss this. It's not a nice conversation to have, obviously. My grandmother actually probably 30 years ago, donated her corneas. And I remember the conversation at the time. Um, and it's, it's something that's it's so important for the, the recipient, obviously. Um, but I also think it's a lovely thing for a family to be able to do. There is a part of that person that continues to live. And although it's an awful time and it's a difficult time, and very often it obviously happens maybe after an accident or something like that, I think people need to think about it and share those wishes with their families because it's such a great opportunity. Do you
1: know how soon we're likely to see this law progress?
3: I don't, but I would hope it would be this year. If it's at committee stage in the Dole now, and I think the Minister has said there will be time in the coming weeks, you would expect it to finish in the Dole before the end of July, into the Shannon in the autumn, and hopefully be law by the end of this year. It's an incredibly important policy change the government has introduced, and actually much of it started in the Shannon, and the Shannon was very supportive of this opt-out clause, but it will force people to think about it, it will force people to engage, and it will hopefully create a much greater culture of work donation.
0: Uh, Michelle, do you know anything about your donor? No, it's all anonymous. Um, I think driving up to Beaumont was when it first hit me that, you know, while our family were celebrating the call, you know, just understanding that there was a family somewhere grieving their loved one. It's, it's, it's very much a roller coaster. Um, so while I don't know anything about them, I did have an opportunity to meet a donor family at the launch of Oregon Donor Awareness Week. And that was very moving and, you know, very special because there's there's no way I can thank them. If that family hadn't had the conversation, if that family hadn't made the decision to donate their loved one's organs, because I was so hard to match, I could be waiting another two, three, 10 years. We don't know. And the difference that will make to my son's life, having a healthy mother for the first time. And it also means that now I'm off the list, someone else moves up. It's, you know, it's, it's a whole chain. Mm-hmm. And from talking to donor families, as I understand it, most of them do feel that you know, their their loved one is leaving a legacy and saving lives and it it helps with the grieving process, as I understand it, which is incredible in and of itself.
1: Yeah. Do, are you hopeful? I mean, where where do we stand, Carol, just finally on in terms of, you know, numbers of of, of donor recipients and, and how we manage our, 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 our transplant program in this country? Does it does it need kind of an overhaul in terms of numbers, in terms of available?
4: Oh, uh, very
7: definitely. Yes. Um, there's quite a lot of structural issues with um, our transplant program. We have the ODTI, which was the statutory agency set up as a result of a European directive, but they don't actually have control over the transplant programme. So, to give an example, there's a 21 bed unit set up in St. Damien's in Beaumont, and the original idea of that was that it would be solely dedicated uh, to transplants, Uh, but that hasn't happened. Uh, The majority of those beds are actually allocated to other areas, so if there's an overflow from the emergency department, can't take place there's no dedicated theatre space so you see transplant surgeons happen to negotiate with their colleagues over getting time in the theatres so whereas this bill is very important is not going to solve the problem what one of the changes we'd like to see in the bill is just that there is legislation to actually publish what's called a potential donor audit because it's a complex process so we need to publish those results in in the legislation they need to be made available Okay. Well,
1: thank you all very much. Thank you, Carol. Um, Thanks to to you, Michelle, and I hope you stay in good health. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. We do appreciate it. Uh, And thanks, Barry. Uh, We are going to leave that there. My thanks to the panel. Coming up next, uh, the Florida governor who spent the last year fighting Mickey Mouse and plans to spend the next year fighting Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is running for president. We will be live to the states next. Donald Trump's biggest challenger for the Republican nomination for president has just thrown his hat into the ring. Ron DeSantis has filed his presidential papers and in the next few minutes plans to announce it all on Twitter in an interview with Elon Musk. Well, let's go live now to Will Dennis Lowe, who's in New York. You're waiting there the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, we are likely to see that Twitter Spaces sort of announcement, would you say, Will? Um, it's a strange one, isn't it? But this is the way he's doing it now. This may be the way the campaign goes, but he's talking to Elon Musk about his plans for the US presidency.
8: Yeah, Claire, of course, the some of the parallels, if we cast our minds back to the 2016 race, that of course all, uh, Donald Trump claimed the keys to the White House are fascinating, considering the fact that back then Donald Trump used Twitter to great effect to try and mobilise his base to get his messaging out there on social media at really an unprecedented rate in U.S. politics. And, of course, if we fast forward to today, Claire, we know that Donald Trump is not currently using uh, Twitter. He was banned for a certain time on the platform. He started his own Truth Social. So we're really seeing Ron DeSantis in what seems like a very pointed move to announce his official bid for the presidency on that social media platform that Donald Trump had enjoyed so much success and, of course, doing it in a conversation with uh, the owner of Twitter, which really just shows potentially, or many are speculating, just shows how uh, politicized Twitter could become as the race to the White House heats up. Now, of course, we have heard from the owner of Twitter, uh, Elon Musk, in the past, who's expressed some level of support for Ron DeSantis, but he has been keen to say uh, that this appearance is not explicitly an, an endorsement. And of course, Speaking of social media and the former president, we have heard from Donald Trump taking to Truth Social this Wednesday here in the US. And he has said that Ron DeSantis, who he has described as Ron DeSantis in a purposeful typo, it seems, he says that he is in need of a personality transplant transplant and is a disloyal person. So we're already seeing a continuation of attacks from the former president to the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Of course, that is a theme we've been seeing in recent months. Ron DeSantis is, of course, widely seen as the biggest challenger to Donald Trump to be the next Republican nominee.
1: Trump, we know, uh, loves performing, loves being on stage and riling up the crowd and, and and getting all his supporters going. Can the same be said for Ron DeSantis? Does he have that factor?
8: Well, essentially, that'll be... that'll really remain to be seen, whether he can do it on the national stage. Donald Trump has been saying that he'd be nowhere... Uh, if it wasn't for him. And he said Donald Trump argues that it was his endorsement back in 2018 in the Florida gubernatorial race that helped push DeSantis over the line uh, in that race. And he says that is why DeSantis is being unloyal towards him. Now, DeSantis is really very much in terms of his policies, much of the same kind of ground that Donald Trump uh, occupies when it comes to very conservative policies. We've seen, of course, the six-week abortion law. We've seen uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida railing against those federal guidelines when it came to COVID, when it came to vaccines, when it came to mask mandates. So much of the same political space. But what we can expect to hear from Ron DeSantis is that he is a winner. He's won in Florida, while Donald Trump lost uh, in the last presidential election. Of course, his nominees suffered terribly in the last midterm election. So that'll be a key argument for Ron DeSantis and he'll say uh, that he'll hope to bring that fraud of blueprint nationwide and essentially he's looking to end what he has described as a culture of losing in the Republican Party with Donald Trump at the head of it.
1: All right we'll have to see as well what happens in the next few minutes uh, with that all-important launch. Will, Will Dennis Lowe joining us from the US. Thank you for that. Now, former White House correspondent Gina London joins me here for more on all of this. Um, what has made Ron DeSantis, do you think, Gina, that Trump's number one challenger? Well, it's a crowded field over in the Republican side of the aisle already in, as
9: we're good, looking into the presidential primary. But he's got the biggest name recognition of among them. We've got former... The U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, we've got Tim Scott, interestingly, he's being overshadowed by the announcement that's upcoming from Ron DeSantis because the senator from South Carolina just put in his hat in the ring earlier this week and interestingly didn't get as much of an insulting nickname or any of those types of things that you'd expect as a response from Donald Trump when he put his name in. But... What we're hearing right now from experts is this is a crowded field already. And so what does that do? Well, that means in one respect that all of the blood is out against Ron DeSantis, because if he's the number one challenger, interestingly, 30 points behind, as we're speaking right now, against Trump, the other... Experts are saying that everybody else in the field is going to essentially eat their own, and Trump once again will emerge. Too soon to tell, because we've got, of course, lots of legal wrangling going around Trump swirling and swirling with the Manhattan case is now this week. that has been determined that the one with the hush money against Stormy Daniels, that's going to go to trial in March, the same time that the primaries And the caucuses for the Republican Party and the presidential race are going to be getting underway. And so there's a lot to be said that's still in play. And actually, the idea of Ron DeSantis as someone who used to live in Florida and worked at the Orlando Sentinel, his ability to launch and be enamored or have the rest of the the United States be enamored with him is really, I think, telling in those 30 points that Mm. he's already down. The situation in Florida is not one which is very appealing to the rest of the United States. They have housing crisis. They have employment crisis. And let's not forget the big battle with the mouse, Disney.
1: It is raging right now. through all of this stuff, all of the other things that are probably going on in the state of Florida... Culture wars are his calling card, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, tell us about this Disney spot because he's taken on like a massive employer in the state. The number one private employer. Yeah, an entertainment giant that has all the, the family values you'd imagine. Many that, Irish that the families come and want. go and take is, their family over there every a, year. It is a risky move, isn't it? It's what's a very it risky about? move. Well, what's happened, it's
9: been going on for about a year now. And it was launched because Governor DeSantis signed what's being called the don't say no, don't say gay bill which was regulating how the public school teachers could talk about gender and sexual identity in schools. And so Walt Disney and the Walt Disney Corporation came forward and criticized that move. And as a result, then, Ron DeSantis and Republican lawmakers there in the state said, we are going to take away Disney's special district. It largely governs itself. We're going to bring in our own members for this 38-square-mile property that Disney has been, been... governing themselves largely since they came on into the state in 1967. And what Disney then did, it's lots of these parries and thrusts happening. So what happened next was Disney said, you know what, your board members are coming in. We're actually going to take that board membership ability away by putting in new rules right before you come on. So then Governor DeSantis is putting in another lawsuit. Disney then just real recently said we're going to actually withdraw our plans for a billion-dollar corporate project that was going to bring another 2,000 into their already 75,000-year employer stronghold into the state. And it's really going to be potentially hurting, an already hurting state, as I mentioned. Problems with housing, problems with employment, and I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to really have a strong statewide record that will appeal to the rest of the population.
1: Yeah, you would wonder, as he launches
9: his campaign, and you would
1: wonder is that savviness there and that business savvy, which whichever you can say about uh, Donald Trump, he ter- ter- certainly you know makes out that he, he he he's all about that. Does he have a chance of stopping uh, the, the Trump juggernaut? If he is too aligned to the same types of policies that Donald Trump has,
9: he's not going to get those mainstream Republicans. And you might see them peel off to someone like a Tim Scott, who's actually launched a very positive campaign so far, although he has single-digit numbers right now and isn't well-known outside of his state. But as an African-American, he has a different sort of profile that might be appealing to those non-MAGAs. In the MAGA world, if it's DeSantis against Trump, Trump's going to win.
1: Okay, well we'll have to wait and see how all of that plays out with courtroom battles and everything else still going on there. That is it from us and my thanks to Gina, all our panelists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. From all the late team here. Good night. care. What's love
5: for a second emotion?